Well, we had a couple of really good games this last weekend, as well as a monster slate of games coming up for this next weekend. We're starting to learn more and more about teams. Some teams that we thought we knew everything about, we knew nothing about. All sorts of playoff scenarios are running through everybody's head. People are still overreacting, and let's get into it. and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk College Football. I am your host, Michael Kirkering, and where to begin? The end of last Saturday was full of drama. Two games specifically, Wisconsin-Iowa and Oregon-Stanford. Where to begin? Where to begin? Um, let's just talk about Oregon-Stanford because that's the hot game everyone's talking about, especially out here on the West Coast. And... This game was very impressive, I would say. Both teams, by the end of the game, I feel like I walked away thinking were very impressive looking, especially Oregon early on. I mean, what a heartbreaker for the Ducks, for those that aren't aware. Basically, Oregon comes out, has a really big lead. They're playing super well. They just look physical, focused coached well everything was going in their favor they're making all the plays that matter their defense was shutting down stanford they were winning the line of scrimmage their offensive line was playing great herbert was dialed in hitting receivers i don't think he had an incompletion for the first like seven or eight passes or something like that oregon was moving the ball well and eventually momentum shifted it was in the third quarter midway through when oregon's going in to put the game away, essentially, they score what would be a touchdown that would give them a 31-7 to lead, but after review, they determined that the ball carrier's foot hit the pylon with the ball held back behind his body, which isn't a touchdown, contrary to what a lot of people were thinking. It's only when the ball hits the pylon that it's an automatic touchdown. So they ruled him out of bounds at the one-yard line, and on the next play, or a couple plays later, there's a high snap over Herbert's head, which Stanford takes back for a touchdown, a fumble return for a touchdown. This was the beginning of the momentum shift that completely changed the game. From there on out, Oregon was playing a little scared. Well, they were still playing aggressive, but they lost the momentum, and Stanford was just on fire after that. Their guys had rejuvenated sense of urgency. They were flying around, making plays, getting jacked up after big defensive tackles and things like that. And they're able to eventually tie the game up. Well, they didn't tie the game up until late in the fourth quarter, and that's another host of controversy. Oregon basically had a chance to run out the clock by taking a knee. It was like a second and three with like a minute 20, something like that left, and they run the ball, go for the first down, fumble, Stanford gets it and has a chance, which they capitalize on, they go down, they tie the game up with pretty much no time left, we're forced to go to overtime. As soon as the game was headed to overtime, I knew Oregon was in trouble. Overtime is one of those things where momentum plays a huge um, part in it, and when you have a team that was up big at home for most of the game against an opponent that a lot of people thought was going to come in there and beat them bad, then you're not very excited when they rally in the fourth quarter and force the game into overtime. You kind of go into the overtime on your heels like, okay, here we go. Where Stanford, on the other hand, when you're the team that has fought back and it's going to overtime, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, we were getting beat so bad and now we have a chance to win in overtime. Like you have all the momentum there 
And that's exactly what happened. Stanford scored like within a couple plays, maybe their first play actually, I forget exactly, but they, they scored a nice touchdown pass right away and just immediately, right out the gate in overtime. It's like, all right, Oregon, score a touchdown or you lose. You had this game in your pocket, but now you need to score a touchdown in a couple plays or you lose. And then there were some questionable pass interference calls that weren't called. Um, honestly, those plays, I think people are putting too much thought in. I think that they were pretty good no calls. It does suck when it's your team and you could have benefited from the calls, but generally I like to see those flags stay in the pockets of the refs. And then Oregon on fourth down just wasn't able to make a play for a touchdown. They lose in overtime in a heartbreaker. And it is sad, obviously, if you're an Oregon fan or you're an Oregon player, like you had that game in your hands. But honestly, I'm going to tell you that I got a lot of positives out of this game if I'm an Oregon Duck fan. And I'll start out by saying Stanford is good, okay? They're a good team. Some of the experts don't seem that impressed with Stanford, but David Shaw has consistently had the same type of team for almost a decade now. These Stanford teams are always the same. I mean, Bryce Love is still back there, guys, and he's making plays. He's not doing what a lot of people thought he would do, but he's still on the team. Just his presence makes you be aware of him. I honestly believe that the reason why receivers like Arcega Whiteside and uh, different other playmakers are able to make plays for Stanford, a lot of that is due to the fact that Bryce Love's on the field and you have to dedicate a lot of attention to him just because of what he's capable of, and it frees up the ball to be distributed to a lot of other playmakers that Stanford has. Stanford's a physical team. Their defense is always physical, strong, but this Oregon team was actually dominating Stanford on the line of scrimmage, especially early on throughout most of the game. And this is something that we haven't seen from Oregon in, well, forever. I mean, even the great Oregon teams under Chip Kelly were not known for what we saw Oregon doing on Saturday. Yeah, Oregon's offense had some similarities to the old Ducks, you know, but from an offensive line perspective, they looked tough, they looked organized, and they looked like they were able to go toe-to-toe with Stanford and were dominating Stanford for the whole first half and most of the third quarter as well. Also, their defense looked really good. They were stepping up, making plays, they were being physical. Usually, these Stanford games come down to Stanford's defense shutting down the Oregon offense and then out-muscling the Oregon defense from an offensive line perspective and just you know mowing down the field slowly and Oregon's usually not able to do much about it but this game that was not the case I mean Oregon kept Bryce Love in check they were making good reads they were flying downhill making tackles so from a long-term perspective if this is the type of play that we're going to start to see at Oregon with some of the recruits that they're bringing in they have potential to be better than we've ever seen them. And that's something I never thought would happen. I, I really didn't think that we were going to see Oregon return to the Chip Kelly days anytime soon. And they're not returning to Chip Kelly days from the standpoint of the play being similar. But as far as having 10-win seasons, 11-win seasons, going to Rose Bowls, playing for national championships, going to the playoff, Oregon definitely, based on what I saw on Saturday, is headed in the right direction I think Mario Cristobal is a very good coach. You know, he's been around. He was a head coach before. He's been under Nick Saban before. He understands what it takes to play college football at an elite level to have a team that's capable of going to the playoff. He knows that he can't just run a flashy offense, try to score a bunch of points in the Pac-12, and then, you know, get to a New Year's Six game where you end up getting beat, which was kind of Oregon's M.O., under Chip Kelly. As good as they looked, they could never quite get over that hump, and it was because they lacked the physicality on defense and the offensive line when playing a dominant, you know, like SEC defensive line or something like that. They they wouldn't be able to get it done. This Oregon team looks like they would be able to get that stuff done, and they're doing really good in recruiting, but let's not get too far ahead on future endeavors. Right now, also, Oregon has... A lot going for it and if I want to 
segue off of this Oregon-Stanford game and talk about next week a little bit because both of these teams are going to be tested hard next week. I'm actually really worried about Oregon going to Cal next week because Cal is a decent team. They jumped to number 24 in the latest AP poll. They are 3-0. and They beat BYU, who's now ranked 20th, who beat Wisconsin. So there's just a lot going on in college football, especially when you get outside of the top four or five teams. There's a lot of shakeups going on, interesting things, and I would not be surprised if Oregon went to Cal and laid an egg after the Stanford game just because mentally in college football, that's what we see happen a lot. So that's one thing I'm really concerned about. I think Oregon right now is playing better than Cal, but when you are playing Stanford at home, you know what Stanford is historically in this division in the Pac-12 for the last, you know, almost 10 years since Harbaugh built them into what they have been and David Shaw's maintained that, they are that team to beat in the North. And obviously Washington's come along late, but Stanford is that team to beat in the North. They have been for some time now. Oregon knows this. Oregon's trying to rebuild. You come out and you have this emotional home game with College Game Day there, the lights against the best team in the conference, and you almost beat them. You come up short. And now you're forced to go on the road for the first time this season if you're Oregon. They've had their first four games at home. Now they'll finally be on the road against a Cal team that if you're an Oregon player, you have to decide, hey, this Cal team is just as capable of beating us as any other team, and I have to bring it. Because if Oregon doesn't play the way they played against Stanford, they could easily get beat by Cal. And if they do go into the Cal game playing the way they played against Stanford, then I think they have a chance to roll Cal. Now let's talk about Cal for a second because they're a team that hasn't really been prominent since the late 2000s, you know, like from 2007, 8, they were they were pretty good then, you know, they had Nate Longshore, Deshaun Jackson, but they haven't really been anything since then, even, you know, when they had Jared Goff, they haven't really done much, but this year they're off to a pretty good start. Like I said, they're 3-0, and but they beat North Carolina in Idaho State, those wins kind of are meaningless considering those teams are terrible, especially North Carolina, and then Idaho State is just a subpar Division One team. But they did beat BYU, and that is BYU's only loss. BYU has a win over Wisconsin, and now that Wisconsin just beat Iowa, it seems like maybe that was sort of an upset, but they're just a good team that beat another good team. So Cal is a huge question mark right now. We I really don't know anything about Cal, and I'm expecting them to finish with at least four losses this year, but who knows? Maybe they're a rising team in the North, and this is going to be their year. We'll find out. If they beat Oregon and go 4-0 to start the season, they're going to be in pretty good shape. So I think 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard time is when the Oregon-Cal game does kick off. That's going to be number 19 versus number 24. So a big-time matchup. Really excited for that one because we're going to learn a lot from that game. That, that's my favorite part about the season is when you have a big game where you have the ability to learn a lot, kind of like Stanford-Oregon last week. We learned that, okay, Stanford is basically that team that they are every year, but Oregon is a lot more physical than we thought and maybe has a chance to make some serious noise in the Pac-12, even though they did just suffer a loss. So going into this Cal game, we will learn a lot again about both teams. We will learn if Oregon was just the type of team that was able to get up for one game against Stanford and now they maybe go into the Cal game, disrespect them and lose or something like that. That'll show us more like, okay, maybe this Oregon team was a year away. Or maybe they go in there and they thump Cal and we realize, okay, this Oregon team was legit, and now Stanford is looking even better than we thought. You know, you, you learn different things like that as you watch different games week to week and, and follow teams as, and see how they played against this team and then that team. And then we have the ability to learn a lot about Cal. I mean, if Cal comes out and plays a good game based on what we think we know about Oregon right now, maybe they are legit, which that would be pretty cool for the Pac-12, I think. If Cal could come back and maintain being ranked for a couple weeks. Um, it, I think the best thing for the Pac-12 would be if this game was really close. I don't think it matters that much who wins. We just don't want a team to get embarrassed here because this game is definitely suspect to having an illegitimate team in it. Now, whether that's Oregon or Cal, we won't know, but 
I really don't think Cal's going to blow out Oregon or anything, but it's possible that Oregon blows out Cal if they, if they play the way that I think they're capable of. But again, I'm just really, really worried. I can't stress it enough about Oregon playing Cal after this last game. Anyway, though, let's segue back to Stanford because while we learned a lot about them this week, we will learn even more about them this upcoming Saturday because they take on number eight, Notre Dame. So this game is number seven, Stanford versus number eight, Notre Dame. It's at Notre Dame. It's going to be a tough game for Stanford. Notre Dame, who beat Michigan, they have that huge win under their belt, and then they kind of were playing a little soft after that. They weren't beating some of these lower tier teams by a lot of points. They, they weren't looking flashy, let's just say that. But they played Wake Forest on Saturday, and they changed quarterbacks to Ian Book, and they put up 56 points on a Wake Forest team that isn't terrible. I mean, Wake Forest is, is okay this year. They're definitely better than Ball State and some of the other teams that Notre Dame had played. But Notre Dame definitely seemed to make the right move here by changing quarterbacks. Ian Book is still a good athlete, similar to Brandon Wimbush. He's not quite the runner that Wimbush was, but he's an athlete. He's dynamic. He can make plays, and he just looks like he has a good sense of pocket presence. When he's out of the pocket, he keeps his eyes downfield. He, he just makes a lot of throws. Notre Dame has a lot of talent. This Stanford-Notre Dame game is definitely going to be an exciting one. I'm really looking forward to it. The Notre Dame-Stanford games the last decade have not disappointed. They've all been very good. And this one is at Notre Dame, and I think Stanford is going to have their hands full because I do think that the Notre Dame defense is better than Oregon's defense. I mean, if you look at the way they played against Michigan and, and even in some of their last games, they're just a physical, talented team. I said early on in my season preview, you know, this, this defense is loaded with juniors and seniors. They're disciplined. They don't make big mistakes. It's very hard to have a big play against them. You might, you know, move the ball down the field on a couple different drives and get get a touchdown here and there, but they are very stingy. And Stanford doesn't do anything complicated. Stanford relies on out-physicaling you. I don't even know if that's a word. But they, they rely on, you know, using their strength and shoving the ball down your throat with their offensive line and their running backs. And Notre Dame is going to be a hard team to do that against. And similarly, Notre Dame's offense they don't necessarily do double tight, but they are the same thing. They want to establish a strong run game and then go to play action and have their athletes beat your athletes. So this game is really going to come down to two things. Who is more physical? You have two really physical teams here, but one of them has to outperform the other when it's all said and done. Stanima comes into that a lot. You know, anyone can be physical for a quarter or two, but into the fourth quarter or possibly overtime like we saw last week who is still playing super physical and who is now running out of gas that's what's going to be huge and also quarterback play you have two good quarterbacks in this game in kj costello for stanford and ian book now from Notre dame and one of these quarterbacks is going to have to step up and make plays because like i said these defenses are both stingy tough they don't give up the big plays these quarterbacks are going to have to be accurate and fit balls into tight windows more often than their counterpart in order to get this win. I think this will be a low-scoring NFL-style football game, which is my favorite. I love when college football is like that. So this, And also, this is a huge game as far as playoff implications go. I mean, Stanford has, yeah, they have a lot of stuff in the Pac-12, but a lot of people look down on the Pac-12. Notre Dame looks pretty good this year. This would be a huge win for Stanford to take back to the Pac-12 while they still have, you know, Washington out there. And then from from there, you know, they play Cal and these other teams, obviously, to the rest of the North. But after this game, if Stanford can win, they will then be 5-0 and with two big back-to-back -back road wins. I mean, going to Oregon and then Notre Dame in consecutive weeks is very tough. And Notre Dame has already beaten one really good team team at home in Michigan, and this is now their second big test. And Notre Dame really needs this win because although their schedule looked crazy in the beginning of the season, and it's still a hard schedule, some of the marquee games on Notre Dame's schedule are not as big as they were. With Virginia Tech losing to Old Dominion, that was supposed to be Notre Dame's biggest road test. That's next week, and I'm sure that that will still be a good game, and it's not like Virginia Tech is just some terrible team, but 
them losing and getting upset by Old Dominion does not help Notre Dame for the schedule. Obviously, Florida State looks terrible this year. They might be have a losing record by the time they play Notre Dame, so that doesn't help Notre Dame. That was supposed to be another big-time home game that they were supposed to use to flaunt if they got that victory. And hopefully for Notre Dame, USC comes on strong so that when they play USC at the very end of the season, they can flash that as a somewhat of an impressive win. But... As far as like top 10 t- matchups and opponents, it looks like this could be the last one Notre Dame plays. So it's very important that they win, especially at home. I don't really agree with this, but most of the experts are saying that Notre Dame has to go undefeated to make the playoff. And maybe with the way their schedule is actually shaping up, that that's true. Again, Notre Dame doesn't have a bad schedule by any means. The, their schedule is very tough. I would say tougher than pretty much any other Power 5 team even though they might not play as many top 10 games as it looked like, they still play 12 pretty good football teams. The worst team on their schedule is Ball State. And honestly, when I'm looking at strength of schedule, I don't necessarily look at, oh, well, how many you know top-ranked te- teams do you play? I more look at how many bottom-feeder easy cupcakes do you play? You know, Alabama plays three cupcakes this year. They play Arkansas State, Louisiana... Monroe or Louisiana, the, the Cagers, whoever that is, again, it's irrelevant, and then they also play the Citadel. Whereas Notre Dame, the worst team they play is Ball State, and every other team on their schedule is a pretty decent football team. Yeah, they might only be a 6-6 six and six team, but I think it's a lot easier, depending on the team you are, to play, to say, hey, like if you're Alabama, you say, hey, we've got four games on the schedule that are extremely tough extremely tough a ranked opponent an lsu you know an auburn but we have three games that are also essentially bye weeks i think that is no more different than notre dame saying hey we don't have any bye week type games for the most part everyone we play is a power five division one school and they still have some of those games against really tough opponents. I mean, the Michigan Michigan will probably be a 10-2 team this year. Notre Dame beat them. Stanford will probably be a 10-2, 11-1 team this year. Notre Dame has a chance to beat them. Virginia Tech, as ridiculous as it was that they got beat by Old Dominion, and I'm really pissed about that, but that's another story. They have to go play there. That's going to be a really tough game. Florida State looks terrible. Maybe they'll be better by that point in the season. But that's still not a game like, hey, we just show up and we win. No. Uh, Syracuse is looking a lot better this year. Notre Dame plays them. And then, of course, they always have to go play USC. I think USC, by the end of the season, is going to really figure out who they are. JT Daniels will be playing better. And that's going to be a tough game for Notre Dame to go on the road in their very last game. So... Obviously, I think if Notre Dame is undefeated, I think it's a no-brainer that they're in the playoff. But I also think an 11-1 and Notre Dame team can easily be considered for the playoff. I mean, how would an 11-1 and Notre Dame team have a worse case than Alabama last year at 11-1? and Alabama didn't, like, go undefeated, play in the conference championship game to go, 11, to go you know, 11-1 and or 12-1. and They lost a regular season game, finished 11-1. and so if Notre Dame goes 11-1, and especially if they lose, let's say, at Virginia Tech or something, they beat Stanford, they beat Michigan, they lose at Virginia Tech, and then they run the table, they're 11-1. and I think that would definitely get them in over, let's say, an Alabama team that goes 11-1 and like they did last year. Now, Alabama could still get in over them at 11-1. and I don't know why I'm honing in on Alabama. It could be anybody. But let's say last year you had the 10-2 and Ohio State team that didn't get in because of the blowout loss and it being a second loss. Same with USC winning the Pac-12. That's kind of why Alabama, even though typically going 11-1 and and losing your last game, 80% of the time you are not getting in the playoff if you do that. If you go lose your last game to your rival miss your conference championship game, most of the time you will not make the playoff because of that. Alabama kind of got lucky from the sense that, well, 
they were 11 and 1 and at first glance you're like okay well that doesn't get you in the playoff but then when you looked around the rest of the country you're like okay well of all the teams that are fighting for that fourth spot you have 11 and 1 Alabama who didn't win a conference championship or even play for one and then you had a conference champion Ohio State but they were 10 and 2 and then you had a conference champion USC but they were also 10 and 2 so between those three teams it it, it made the most sense to put Alabama in but let's say Notre Dame would have been sitting out there at 11 and 1 last year while Alabama was sitting there i i really think they would have got the nod over Alabama and you can argue whether that that would have been fair or not, but I really think that's what would have happened. And I think this year that if if Alabama, if Notre Dame goes eleven and one, they have just as good of a shot to get in as any other one loss team. They definitely wouldn't get in over a one loss team that has a conference champion. But I think they should be the first team to get in as a one loss without a conference champion. If if it even comes down to that, again, it might not come down to that. You know, we might have an undefeated Georgia team or Alabama win the SEC, they're going. We might have an undefeated Clemson to go with it, or a one-loss Clemson even, ACC champ, they're in. And then a Big 12 team with one loss or less, they're in. And then a Pac-12 team with one loss or less, they would be in. So then Notre Dame would have nothing to complain about. But if we start to see some two-loss champions or some shakeups happen similar to last year and what's happened in college football in the past, then Notre Dame at 11-1 and one is going to have a case to get in. But they really need to beat, beat Stanford at home to make that happen. Obviously, losing to Stanford, as long as it's close, wouldn't be a bad loss. But if you're Notre Dame, I really think you need to win this Stanford game. And if you are going to lose, it's got to be close on the road to Virginia Tech or something. It, it can't be to Stanford at home. So let's get into some of the rest of the slate for next Saturday. I've already talked about Stanford, Notre Dame, Oregon, Cal. Those games are later in the day. But right off the get-go at 9 a.m. Pacific time, there are two games that I'm very interested in. One of them is Clemson versus Syracuse. For the simple standpoint that Syracuse is undefeated, Syracuse is playing a lot better than we've seen them play. They did get the upset over Clemson last year. Of course, this time they have to go to Death Valley. That could be a different story. I think Clemson's definitely favored, and it's more of like an upset alert. We don't know much about Syracuse. They destroyed Florida State. Florida State looks terrible right now. But they do have a good defense, which Syracuse put 30 points on, and that was their lowest total of the season by far so far. They've scored 51 points, 55 points, and 62 points in their other three games. So... They have offensive firepower. They're looking to try to go toe-to-toe with Clemson and rely on their defense to at least get some stops. The problem is I don't think Syracuse defense is good enough. I think at the end of the day, Clemson makes more plays than Syracuse. One thing to watch out for, and I'm going to talk about this again at the very end of the show, but Clemson announced this week that they would move Trevor Lawrence to their starting quarterback. Remember, Trevor Lawrence is the five-star all-world recruit that came in. He has now officially replaced Kelly Bryant. And two days after that decision was made, just this morning, Kelly Bryant has decided to transfer, which is bringing up a bunch of debate about this new uh, redshirt rule, which I'll talk about later. But just focusing on this game, this could be kind of a big deal. We don't know how this is going to affect the locker room. Remember, Kelly Bryant, unlike... Jalen Hurts and that quarterback situation in Alabama. Kelly Bryant is a senior this year, if I'm not mistaken. He started all year last year as a junior, took them to the playoff where they lost to Alabama, and he started early this year, and he has slowly been windled out by this Trevor Lawrence guy. Now, there are a lot of players on this team that probably love Kelly Bryant, and maybe they're affected or sad to see him leave the team. It's one thing to be benched. It's another thing when you go from being the starter to being benched to transferring out of the program all within a couple of days. There's a lot of people already tweeting about this. I'm sure it's going to be all over the news um, the rest of the week and and the rest of the season even. So we don't know if that's going to affect Clemson's ability to get up for this game in any way. I don't think it will have too big of an effect, but this is just a game I'm really interested in seeing, seeing if Syracuse is legit how legit are they they're trying to come up in the ACC and show themselves and they have a really good chance to do that see if they can knock off Clemson for the second year in a row 
also at 9 a.m. Pacific time, is a game I'm interested in. This is number 12, West Virginia, versus number 25, Texas Tech. And I guess I'm just interested because I'm interested to see West Virginia play in any sort of game that might be challenging. And according to the new rankings this week, Texas Tech comes in. They're ranked number 25. I am not on board with Texas Tech. I don't even know why they're ranked. They're 3-1. and one. They have no impressive wins other than Oklahoma State last week, which I guess, yeah, that they, that did look good. But I more just took away from that game that Oklahoma State wasn't legit. I didn't really take much out of Texas Tech. I think I also just have the taste in my mouth of I watched pretty much the whole game in week one where Texas Tech was obliterated by Ole Miss, and we know Ole Miss is nothing special, so I don't really think Texas Tech is anything special here either, but that's why I'm expecting West Virginia to play really well against them, and if West Virginia doesn't play well in this game, most likely I'm gonna my takeaway is going to be that West Virginia needs some work to do. Just Texas Tech would have to do a lot of things to impress me, like maybe be have really good defensive back play and Will Greer get frustrated or, or something. But this game, kind of similar to the Clemson game I was just talking about, this game will probably be a shootout where West Virginia ends up winning by a couple scores, maybe even three touchdowns because their defense is a lot better than Texas Tech. Texas Tech does have a good offense, but at the end of the day, I think that West Virginia will be too much for Texas Tech to handle. That's all I really have to say about that. Moving on to 12:30, Mississippi State, Florida. This will be an interesting game. This is where I think we really find out who both of these teams are. That's why this one's an exciting game. It, there's not as much flash around the title with compared to a lot of the other games this week because it's just, just number 23, Mississippi State versus Florida. Remember, both these teams have already lost to Kentucky. When Florida lost to Kentucky, we kind of looked at it as, oh, Florida sucks, they're terrible. Um, Kentucky, good for them, they broke the streak. Well, then Kentucky went in and pretty much beat down Mississippi State last week, and Mississippi State has looked pretty good so far. That They're not a fake team. They are, they're pretty much what we thought they were, but we did not think they were going to get beat by Kentucky, at least not that bad. So that's making me at least question, okay, Florida could have been a decent team, and that Kentucky game could have just been two pretty decent schools playing each other where Kentucky got the edge. If Florida beats Mississippi State, that's going to be big for them because, like I said, a lot of people are kind of writing them off after the Kentucky loss is not being that good, but it's looking like they might still be a pretty good team here. Dan Mullen has a chance to get a big win against his former school. That's also the interesting storyline here. We have Dan Mullen returning to Starkville. He was the coach at Mississippi State for a while, and now he's back at Florida. So he will have a lot of knowledge on the personnel at Mississippi State, and I that is why I give Florida the edge. I think Florida's going to get this win here. It's, it's a tough game. It's a toss-up, but I'm excited at least to just learn about either of these teams. You know, Mississippi State has a chance to bounce back. They could, you know, really kick it to Florida, show that, hey, they're legit, which would just make Kentucky look even better or Florida could say hey we are a good team Kentucky was a good team we slipped up there but we're going to take it to Mississippi State so really excited for this game because it's going to be a game where we learn a lot and those are the intriguing games to me moving on to 4 p.m. we have Duke versus Virginia Tech Duke comes into this game ranked number 22 Virginia Tech is not ranked after they got upset by Old Dominion last week which really puts a damper on this game I was really hoping this this game's still going to be what it is, but it would be nice if Virginia Tech wouldn't have got upset and they came into this game ranked, and this would be a marquee game for the ACC Coastal Division. It still is. Virginia Tech pretty much cost them a chance at like going to the playoff or something like that, but they have no bearing on the ACC, that loss, so they can easily win this game, still be undefeated in conference play, division play, Duke is looking to show that they are legit and they're probably also in a way upset that Virginia Tech lost because now Virginia Tech is in even more of a must-win situation. Not that they wouldn't have been if they would have beat Old Dominion, but it's it probably served as a wake-up call for them. So that game is going to be very interesting. I am taking Virginia Tech, especially after losing this last week. I, and that depends. I think that Josh Jackson might be out. I haven't gotten confirmation on that yet. If he is a no-go, then I guess I might lean more Duke 
because I think him going out in the Old Dominion game is what eventually led to Virginia Tech not being able to score there at the end. But this game is still going to be big for the Coastal. Notre Dame is obviously watching this game close because, like I said, they go to Virginia Tech the, the week following, and I'm sure they would like Virginia Tech to get this win so that that beefs up their strength of schedule a little bit. But still disappointed that Virginia Tech isn't ranked 13th or 12th like they were because this game would have even more hype going in. But whatever, nothing you can do there. Moving on at 4.30 is where all the big games of the day are. I already talked about Stanford-Notre Dame. But there are three other pretty big games at 4.30, starting off with number 17, Kentucky versus South Carolina. Again, Kentucky has a chance to take that next step, and they're playing another really good team in South Carolina. Between Florida, Mississippi State, South Carolina, those three games, if Kentucky wins those three games, they definitely deserve a lot of respect, and they probably would jump right up to that second team in the East who can maybe challenge Georgia. But they got to win this game. If they lose this game, they're kind of probably just sitting there right on the tiers with Mississippi State, Florida, South Carolina. And South Carolina has a chance to bounce back. They lost to Georgia a couple weeks ago, but they are looking to show that they're that second team in the SEC East. And a win over Kentucky, who's coming in hot right now, would be big for them. So excited to learn about those teams. And another big game that has two teams that we have the ability to learn a lot about is Washington, who's 11, versus 20 BYU. Now, I think we already know for the most part who Washington is. They played that really competitive game against Auburn in Week 1. They've had Jake Browning for three years now. Receivers are different, but playing the same. They've got really good defense. This Chris Peterson team looks pretty much like the last two Washington teams. Will they be able to get over the hump this year? That's yet to be seen. But BYU comes into this game ranked... They had a big win against Wisconsin a couple weeks ago. Their only losses to Cal, which at the time did not look good for BYU, but who knows going forward. That's what's so intriguing about these early season games is you just don't really know what you're looking at, and that's why you have to pay attention. Even if a game doesn't seem like it means much, like BYU-Cal back when it was played, you got to pay attention to that because now, this week, BYU and Cal both ranked, playing ranked opponents, and have a chance to show them, show the world that they're for real. BYU and Washington should be a good game. I'm taking Washington this game. I just really believe in Washington this year. I think they do get over that hump. I see them running the table, and, and I pick them to go to the playoff preseason. So I do like them this game, but I think it will be pretty close, especially early on. BYU is a tough team, and they will definitely give Washington everything that they've got. They have a pretty solid defense, and I think that if Washington's not careful, they could get into a... A toughie with BYU here so interested in that game but of course the game I think most everyone is looking forward to the most not just because of it being a top 10 matchup but because of the historic presence that both these programs have and the venue it's going to be played at number four Ohio State at number nine Penn State a huge huge game in the Big Ten East both these teams in the same division of the Big Ten and it essentially can can end up being the division championship game. I picked Penn State to go to the playoff early on. I still feel pretty good about that pick. Penn State looks good. They have a veteran, obviously, with McSorley at quarterback, but Ohio State looks extremely talented. They looked really good in all of their games so far, especially in that win against TCU. However, TCU did lose again this week to Texas, so was TCU not as good as we thought? Maybe. I blame that loss more on kind of what I said I was worried about Oregon going into Cal as TCU played Ohio State close and just couldn't get up the same energy for Texas the next week. But focusing on this game, Penn State has to come out early and be aggressive, much like they were last year in Columbus. They just have to finish. And after seeing what TCU was able to do for a while against Ohio State, I like Penn State's chances here on offense to make some plays happen against Ohio State's defense, especially given the fact that Nick Bosa is out and looks to be out for some time. He is probably one of the best players in the entire country, just football players, and he was critical for Ohio State's pass rush. David Pollock said earlier today on College Football Live that he doesn't think that Ohio State can win a national championship without Nick Bosa. Doesn't mean they can't beat Penn State without Nick Bosa, but finally 
getting bringing home that trophy is something he thinks that they need Nick Bosa for and it's hard to disagree with that statement Nick Bosa is a very very talented defensive lineman and Ohio State is going to miss him dearly however if you look at Penn State they need to watch out because it's going to be hard for anybody to fully defend Ohio State especially in the passing game the way Dwayne Haskins has been able to distribute the ball push it downfield he looks like an, a future NFL quarterback but Ohio State still has NFL running backs that they haven't even fully unleashed this season not that they haven't been good but definitely not shown what they're fully capable of yet we all know Mike Weber JK Dobbins they have the ability to make a statement in this game because Penn State has to respect the pass game and their run defense has given up some plays they gave up over 250 yards to both Illinois and Pitt a couple weeks ago on the ground so they need to tighten that up they cannot let Ohio State run all over them but they also have to be wary of the pass so it's gonna be a big challenge for both of these defenses wouldn't be surprised if this game was a little high scoring like last year it's just going to come down to who wants it more, which is also an intriguing thing because both of these coaches, James Franklin for Penn State, Urban Meyer for Ohio State, are both known for their motivating, giving big speeches and getting their players pumped up. So look for this game to just be high-flying, super intense. It's going to be a whiteout night game in Happy Valley, which is always a crazy environment, definitely a bucket list place that I would like to get to eventually. And it's always big whenever Ohio State and Penn State meet. I remember growing up watching this this game every year, and it's always exciting. So many memories. Uh, just a couple years ago, the last two years actually, we were we were blessed with the Saquon Barkley games. And there's one game in particular I always remember when I was in eighth grade. It was the year Trell Pryor had the fumble at Ohio State, which cost Ohio State that game. Penn State was able to win. I don't know why that one just sticks with me a lot. And I'm just really excited for another classic, and this game might be the height of any of these games that Penn State and Ohio State have played recently against each other because it really is hard to deny that this is for the division championship. I mean, both of these teams are going to have marvelous seasons. They'll probably both end up in New Year's Six games, but only one of them can probably go to the playoff. And it's really going to come down to this game. The loser of this game is going to have a hard time getting back into it. The they would need the, the winner of this game to lose twice. So let's say Penn State loses to Ohio State. Yeah, of course they're not out of it with the one loss. But they would then need Ohio State to lose two more conference games going forward for them to get back in the running. You know, And that's possible. Ohio State still has to play Michigan State. Michigan and Penn State will have its challenges going forward but the loser of this game is going to be in a tough spot when it comes to being able to win their division and it's hard to get into the playoff unless you're Alabama if you don't win your division so big big matchup super excited this is definitely the game of the week you can make the argument I guess Stanford Notre Dame that'll be big too but this is the perfect cherry on top to what is just a really good slate of games I cannot wait to be watching games all day long on Saturday so many good ones, so many learning opportunities. We're, we're finally a quarter of the way through the season, and we're really getting to that point where we have the chance to learn a lot about the games that we're watching because every team has a little bit of a history now. Most teams have played four games going into this week. So when you're watching a team that has played four games and then they enter a big game and they play that game and you see the result, you have that history that allows you to really start to figure out what th these teams are it's a lot harder to do that in week one when you have you know Notre Dame and Michigan play and they look good on the field and one team wins and one team loses and you jumped all these conclusions because you just don't know what those two teams are right look what happened in 2016 when Texas and Notre Dame played it was a very competitive game we weren't sure what we were seeing though and it turned out we were just watching two really mediocre to bad teams play each other and this year it looks like with the Notre Dame Michigan game that it's the opposite and we are only able to tell that now after four to five weeks have gone by and we can analyze what these teams have done against good competition, bad competition. We're just starting to get a better idea of where, where teams are at and that's what I like. That's my favorite part of the season. But I do need to talk about, I said I was going to come back to this before we left, 
the new redshirt rule and some of the, I think, unintended fallout, if you will, that's happening because of it. The most recent case being that, so we saw that Dabo Sweeney named Trevor Lawrence the starting quarterback at Clemson. That was on Monday. And just this morning, Kelly Bryant, the original starter who's a senior, is now announcing that he will sit out the rest of this year and transfer. Now think about it. He's a senior. He's already played in four football games this season. He's played in four games. But because this new transfer rule, or or redshirt rule, excuse me, that allows you to retain a year of eligibility if you played in four games or less, he's now saying, hey, I'm not playing the rest of this year. This year will be a redshirt for me, which will also count as his sit-out year for transferring, and then next year he will be immediately eligible to play somewhere else. Now, first of all, I just want to say you got to commend Dabo Sweeney on this because Dabo could have easily started him one more game and then benched him, and then guess what? He can't transfer anywhere because he would have played in five games instead of four. So really got to tip your hat to Dabo. He really truly does care about what the best scenario is for the players versus the team because obviously the best case scenario for the team is to have Trevor Lawrence and Kelly Bryant both on your roster. Regardless of who's starting and who's backup, that is a good roster. That is a good plan to have. It's a way sketchier scenario for Clemson to have just Trevor Lawrence and no Kelly Bryant because they're both experienced. You feel good if one of them goes down. But now that Kelly Bryant has taken himself out of the equation, you really are relying on Trevor Lawrence to stay healthy or you could be in big trouble if you're Clemson. And Dabo didn't have to do that, but he did. So I think that's a a good thing. Of course, a lot of people are talking about the new transfer rules because of this. And it's got to make you wonder, you know, like go to Alabama and Nick Saban, not at all claiming that Nick Saban doesn't have the best intention for his players, but it seems pretty clear to me that the best thing for Jalen Hurts, especially given the fact that he isn't a senior, he's only a true junior this year, he probably should sit out the rest of this year redshirt and then go play two more years at another school. That's probably what's best for him. But Nick Saban and Alabama have kind of taken the other approach. Jalen Hurts is there. He seems pretty chill still. But Tua Tungavailoa is the starter. And I think this is just an interesting thing that we're starting to see in college football, right, where I talked about this a little early on is you have some established quarterbacks and then you have these freshmen come in, taking their jobs, not taking their jobs. It's causing transfers. And I don't know. I'm, I'm a fan of the transfer game just because, especially when it's the older guys, because, hey, like, who wouldn't want to go play somewhere instead of sitting on the bench where they're at? I mean, the whole point of being a football player is you want to play football. But I also understand the argument of like, hey, like someone's got to be backup. You don't just get to abandon a team every time like you're not the starter and trickle out. So that's why I'm a fan of, hey, if, you com- if you're a freshman and you commit to a school, you should be locked in for two years at least before you're eligible to transfer. You don't just get to show up try to be the starter and then oh i'm not the starter i guess i'm leaving right away like there's got to be some commitment but at the same time if a quarterback is older and he's not getting the chance he thought he was going to get or he thinks that he's just guaranteed to start somewhere else i don't have a problem with him exploring those opportunities it's just with this new redshirt rule it's really changing the way we see that i mean we saw a wide receiver for oklahoma state jalen mccleskey he was a starter and he is transferring after four games he played in four games as a starter and decided yeah i don't really like how this is going or how i'm being used i don't know exactly what was going on in his head but he decided to leave that's where people start to scratch their head at the at this new transfer rule is or red shirt rule sorry again is you have players that maybe will start and all of a sudden they feel like the team isn't doing as well as they wanted to or something isn't perfect right usually it's i'm not getting the ball enough and now they can just opt out and leave where before no you would not have been able to play in four games catch touchdown passes and then decide yeah this isn't as awesome as i thought i'm leaving so that one i have a problem with i understand backups who especially at the quarterback position where if you're the backup quarterback you don't play unless the starter gets hurt and that doesn't happen very often But if you're a receiver who starts 
or just you know a defensive back who doesn't play as much as you think you should, but you still get playing time. You're crucial to your team, and then you decide, you know what, I'm going to give this year a try. But if four games into the season, I don't, it's not a perfect scenario. I'm going to leave. You know that is not encouraging. That disencourages the idea of hey. I'm not where I want to be four games in, and I'm just going to practice harder and try harder to get the ball more, you know. So it's interesting. I'm not totally sure how I feel about it. I think I was feeling good about this rule when they first implemented it. I thought, oh, you know, that makes sense. You can test a guy out and still save some of his redshirt eligibility. But I don't think a lot of people anticipated seeing starters and older guys, you know, transfer out, play in four games, give it a test run, and then and then opt to leave. It's a little interesting. I wouldn't quite call it shady, but it's just it's just not exactly what college football is about. So be really interested to see how that type of stuff plays out going forward as we continue to have big-time recruits coming in and replacing starters that have been there. That just looks like it's the name of the game right now, and it's really interesting to follow. Maybe it leads to freshmen making smart decisions and maybe part of recruiting becomes, hey, am I, I'm going to a school where they're not going to replace me in two years, you know, commit to me. Like, I don't know, just different type of things that could play out in recruiting because of this. It definitely makes recruiting depth harder because you, re- you recruit these quarterbacks to your school to have depth and now you hardly have any just because you signed one really good quarterback. So does that going to make some coaches afraid to go after big time quarterbacks or big time players, just just a whole bunch of interesting little scenarios that come out of that. But anyway, that is it for today. Like I said, super excited for this weekend. I'm sure I'm going to have to probably have two shows next week to just discuss everything that we learn from all of these games. Something crazy is bound to happen when you have this many matchups. If you're doing pickums, do not go with all the favorites because somebody who's not supposed to get beat is going to get beat this weekend. The problem is, is we don't know where, so don't just pick all upsets either. But anyway, thanks for listening, guys. It's been great, and I will see you all next week. Yeah.